Good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining our live stream broadcast as I just have emerged from my basement bunker to be with you all. Hope you appreciate that. Why don't we uh, open in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, tonight in Jesus' name. We ask you to bless, Lord, the study for your glory and communion afterwards, Lord, for your glory. We just thank you now. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, before we begin, guys, just to let you know that there will be no service next Wednesday night, uh, July 8th. We'll be out of town, but we will resume on July 15th. We hope to be back at the rec center that Wednesday night. We will still continue to live stream, and uh, we might have a few bugs getting those worked out as we move from uh, my house to the rec center, make sure the Wi-Fi over there is strong enough. We'll see. We'll get it worked out. All right. Well, we want to look at the book of Revelation tonight. So if you would open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And if you're new with us, well, let me just say this to you. We have uh, entered into the second major section of the book of Revelation, which is chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Now, I know that uh, all the chapters in this book, 22 and all, but of all those chapters, really only two and three, chapters two and three, really are practical and meaning for, meaningful for us who are believers in Christ, because the uh, bulk of the chapters, especially chapters six through 19, uh, deals with all the cataclysmic judgments God is going to pour out on this Christ-rejecting world. And I don't believe the church will be here to see that. I believe we'll be raptured off the earth before the tribulation period officially begins. Now, last time in our study in the book of Revelation, we got as far as the letter to the church of Smyrna, which we said was a suffering church. The name Smyrna means bitter, and the word is related to the word myrrh. Now, myrrh is a resin that comes from the dried-up sap of the uh, camophora tree, or the camifera tree, however it's pronounced. Um, and it was used for several purposes, but one of the things it was used for was to bury the dead. They would wrap it in the windings of the grave clothes because it was fragrant. It would stave off the, the smell of uh, the stench of death. Remember, we said that each of the names of these churches is significant. So it's significant. Uh, this church was a suffering church being persecuted, persecuted heavily for their faith. The word Smyrna is tied to uh, a, uh, a balm that uh, is used for burying the dead. Uh, let me just say this that suffering and even martyrdom, of course, uh, for the sake of Jesus, well, that's part and parcel of the Christian life. It has been for many centuries in different parts of the world. America has escaped much persecution because we are a nation founded uh, on, on certain principles, one of those being that we have freedom of religion, and but that is changing. The attitude towards Christians is changing, and before long, uh, especially if this current administration is replaced with a different one, uh, you're going to see uh, the persecution of the Christian church begin to ramp up. But guys, it's just something that has always been uh, a part of the Christian life. In fact, it's promised to us. In uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul said, Yes, in all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. Philippians 1 verse 29, Paul said, 
For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now I want you to notice what Jesus says to this suffering church in verse 10. Revelation 2 verse 10, the Lord Jesus says, Do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. I want you to notice there is no promise in this letter that if they just believed hard enough, they would be delivered from this persecution and so on. God makes them no promise that they were going to escape their suffering. In fact, he says, be faithful until death. They're going to die. Uh, and the Lord lets them know that. He makes no such promise to them or to any of his children that uh, he is going to spare us from persecution, suffering for the cause of Christ. He simply admonishes us to endure it and to be faithful to the end no matter what. As we said last week, the blood of the, of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, has always been the seed of the church. One Christian writer said, and I quote, The day of martyrs is definitely not past. All over the world, Christians face persecution, especially in Asia, Eastern Europe, and in the, Mo and in the Muslim world. Some people estimate that more Christians have suffered and died for their faith in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined. A news report illustrates this, and then he quotes this report. The gruesome martyrdom of a pastor in central India led to seven, several hundred conversions to Christianity. A former Hindu who had changed his name to Paul James was murdered by a crowd of extremists as he spoke in a field prior to a church service in the Pulabani district. He said, Jesus forgive them. Eyewitnesses said James called out uh, as his assailants cut off his hands and legs and severed his torso. The attackers also decapitated James, an outspoken believer who had planted 27 churches. God bless him. The attackers' hatred and violence left many Indians wanting to emulate the love shown by the victims. So the way this man died, the love he showed to his attackers, uh, caused many um, Hindus, many Indians there, uh, to want to come to Christ as well. Uh, the uh, Many Indians wanting to emulate the love shown by the victims said K. Uh, Anand Paul, another gentleman, head of uh, head of gospel to the unreached millions. He said the gospel is spreading because of persecution. Uh, he sa said Paul, who was himself beaten seven times and kidnapped once by fanatical religious groups. He said we are risking our lives to do this. People need to pray for us, end quote. And uh, I am guilty of not praying for the suffering church around the world like I should uh, by God's grace, that will change for all of us. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in very, um, well, anti-Christian areas of the world, Muslim areas and communist areas and so on. But Jesus said to this church, he said, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Guys, crowns in the ancient world were given to soldiers who were victorious in battle and to athletes who were victorious in 
in athletic competition. In fact, the Greek word for crown is stephanos, which literally means victor's crown. Victor's crown. Warren Worsby said, and I quote, the crown of life is the winner's crown award, awarded at the annual uh, athletic games. Smyrna was a key participant in those games, so this promise would be especially meaningful to believers living there. The Lord assured his people that there was nothing to fear. Because they had trusted in him, they were overcomers, all of them. Victors in the race of faith, and as overcomers, they had nothing to fear. Even if they were martyred, they would be ushered into glory, wearing crowns. They would never face the awful judgment of the second death, end quote. We'll talk about that more in a second. And so they were used to the idea of victors wearing crowns. But when Jesus promised that he would give uh, crowns to all overcomers, uh, while they understood the concept, of course, uh, they might not have been, they might not have fully grasped the context. What do I mean? Well, in other words, what area of competition would the battle take place? And what exactly is this crown Jesus said he would bestow to the overcomers? Well, from the context, the arena, of course, was the world. The opponents that were fighting each other, of course, on the one side, there were those who represented God, the Christian church, and so on. Uh, and they would be fighting against the devil and his demonic forces, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Uh, it's interesting that Paul kind of frames this thing uh, in athletic terms when he said in Ephesians 6, verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the forces of wickedness in the spirit realm. We wrestle uh, with these forces. Uh, to have dominance so that the work of God will go forward. Or uh, if the enemy uh, is able to uh, defeat Christians, uh, whether through fear, lack of faith, or whatever, then he, of course, can become dominant in that area of the world. But it's interesting that the battle wouldn't determine who would become the victor. The victor would determine the battle. What do I mean? Well, in other words, once a person receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they at that moment become overcomers. We read in 1 John 5, verse 5, Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. As a believer in Christ, we are not working towards victory. We are working from it. Jesus has already defeated the enemy. We're not working towards victory, we're working from it. As Paul said in Romans 8, verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors, listen, through him, Jesus, who loved us. Guys, we are more than conquerors through him because we are now in him. You see, that's what salvation is all about, being in Christ. You have to understand that, again, Jesus won the victory. In fact, let me just read to, uh, for you Colossians 2, verses 14 and 15, where Paul said, speaking of Jesus uh, and, uh, and all, he said, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 
which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers. That's a reference to demonic spirits and all in the in the demonic demons and uh, and, and angels in the spirit realm. Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made us a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. That's just talking about the victory parade that the winning generals would uh, would march back to their home uh, uh, towns uh, and, and having all the uh, enemies that they had conquered uh, in tow. But uh, it was a parade to honor the, the victor. And uh, we, Jesus Christ, I should say, won the victory on Calvary's cross against Satan and his demons. He triumphed over them. Now, because we are in Christ, Jesus' victory is now our victory. We just need to appropriate it by faith. We need to believe it's ours, and we need to appropriate that victory by faith, believing that Jesus Christ has already done the work. All I need to do is believe and trust that as he lives his life through me, I will be victorious over the alcohol or the cigarettes or the drugs or the pornography or whatever it might be that's got me bound right now, all right? So the enemy we are fighting is Satan and, of course, his demonic uh, army. The battlefield is the word world in which we are currently living, and the prize for victory, as, uh, as Jesus puts it here, is the crown of life. Now, I want you to be careful now. If you uh, interpret this crown as the crown of everlasting life, some people interpret this section uh, that Jesus is saying, look, if you're victorious, if you live a really good Christian life and you're victorious over the flesh, the world, and the devil, uh, when you die, I will give you the crown of everlasting life, indicating that at that moment you will receive, because of what you've done, how you've been victorious, you'll receive everlasting life. Well, that's ridiculous. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, this crown is not a reward. It's not a reward for faithful living and the prizes that you're going to get eternal life. You have it in Christ right now. You have eternal life. Um, this is not a crown we earn. This is not a crown we earn for faithful living. It is a crown that is ours through faith. The faith we exercise the moment we receive Jesus as our Savior, and he gave to us eternal life. Guys, this crown will be placed on us someday like the wedding ring a groom places on the finger of his bride after he vows to her that he will love her and pro protect her, provide for her, and be loyal to her all the days of his life. Uh, as he puts that ring on her finger after he has made that vow, uh, the ring is a symbol of his commitment to her that they are now married. Uh, this crown, in much the same way, will be placed on us by our bridegroom on the day we see him face to face. And we are finally wed to him, finally married to him. Listen, right now, we are betrothed to him, but we're not technically married yet. And when we see him, he's going to place on the heads of his uh, bride, on the head of his bride, uh, these crowns of life. And uh, they're not a, uh, a reward for us uh, having lived a certain kind of victorious life on the earth. Uh, they are given to all believers in Christ because all of us through him are overcomers. 
one pastor brought out something I, I didn't realize. I think it's very interesting. Uh, one pastor and author said, and I quote, there are two different words for crowns in the ancient Greek language. One described the kind of a kind of crown a king would wear. It was called a diadem, a crown of royalty. The other kind of crown is called the stephanos, and that's the word used here. Uh, the, the, this crown is, is, is given as a trophy to a winning athlete, as we said earlier. Jesus looks at the Christians of Smyrna and says to them, You are my winners. You deserve a trophy and places the crown on their head. But the Stephanus was also the crown worn at marriages and special celebrations. The picture is of Jesus and his bride, each wearing their crowns, end quote. Well, in our context, our society, we would say they're both wearing their wedding rings and symbolizing that they are now uh, married. And that will be someday when we see the Lord. But guys, the crown of life mentioned here by Jesus in Revelation 2 verse 10 is not to be confused with the crown Paul talked about, which, listen, will be awarded to us, uh, to believers for faithful living and service to Jesus. Uh, in 2 Timothy 4 verses 7 and 8, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. He's talking about how he lived faithfully for the Lord. So what he's talking here about here is in the context of faithful living and serving of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have faithfully kept my faith and finished the course, the race Jesus gave, to, the ministry he gave me to fulfill. Verse 8, finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, the day I see him face to face, and not to me only, but also to all Christians who have loved his appearing. Guys, this crown is given to those believers who lived, listen, righteously upon the earth in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who finished the work, the ministry that he gave them to do while, while keeping vigilant watch for his return because they loved him. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about those servants who didn't watch for his return, weren't vigilant in watching for his return, but got lazy and started to, you know, to beat the servants and, uh, and, and, and not keep an eye on what was going on. And, uh, he didn't say good stuff was going to happen to them, all right? But uh, these people receive a crown which is given for faithfulness. Now, this one is earned, all right? This one is earned. And uh, they will be awarded this crown for faithful living and faithful serving uh, of the Lord. And part of that is watching vigilantly for his return. But here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 Jesus promises to give these believers the crown that all believers in Jesus will receive someday. This is the crown of the overcomer, the crown given to all true believers in Jesus, the crown the bridegroom gives to his bride. Well, Revelation 2 verse 11, Jesus goes on, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches now. The Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry often would teach something, and then he would say at the end, he who has ears, 
let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, that could uh, be uh, directed at those people that were not yet saved, but the Spirit was working on. They were open to hearing God's truth. Eventually, they would receive Christ. But it also has in view their uh, believers. Once we get saved, God has given to us spiritual hearing. Uh, we are connected to Him through the Holy Spirit, and as such, we uh, hear things. Now, the, the, all unbelievers, if they came to our church, could hear the Bible being taught. It wouldn't be like they couldn't hear it. But when Jesus talks about hearing, He's talking about yeah, listening, but you know, applying, understanding, not just letting it go in one and out the other, but taking it to heart is the idea, and. Uh, you know, he, so this is directed here in chapter 2, verse 11 of Revelation to Christians. Now, in any given church, Smyrna, Calvary Chapel, Elk Grove, whatever, any good, solid Bible teaching church, you're going to have true believers and then some counterfeit believers. In other words, people that may think they're saved but really aren't, really have not made a, a commitment to Christ. They are the tares. Uh, they are the goats among the sheep, that kind of thing. The Bible talks about these people very uh, often in, in the New Testament. But uh, so Jesus says, look, all of you who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, uh, listen. All right, listen. I don't expect unbelievers to listen to what I'm saying. They can't interact with me, even though they come to church. Uh, but all who have an ear to hear, that's all true believers, listen to what I'm saying. At the end of verse 11, we read, well, first of all, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Very important. The second death is referring to the final judgment of all unbelievers in the lake of fire, or in other words, hell. Revelation 20, verse 14, we read, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The Bible talks about two kinds of death, one physical and the other spiritual. Physical death is where a person's soul, their consciousness, is separated from their body. Spiritual death is when their soul or their consciousness is separated from God. And the idea is in hell for eternity, all right? It is possible for a person to be alive physically and yet dead spiritually. In fact, that's what it, it means to be a natural man. Somebody who was born onto the, uh, in this, you know, into this world uh, as a descendant of Adam, uh, and they are born, but, and they're alive physically, but they're dead spiritually. They're dead spiritually. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like you to turn to this one. All right, Ephesians 2, let's pick it up in verse 1. Paul said, And you he made alive, you who were once dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, talking about how we were once unbelievers, alive physically but dead spiritually, 
all of us once conducted ourselves in this way, um, you know, and uh, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So obviously, the Bible teaches very clearly that um, once a person is born physically, they are still dead spiritually. In fact, uh, D.L. Moody put it like this. He said, and I quote, he who has been born once will die twice, but he who was born twice will die once. In other words, he who was only born once, that would be physical, but never receives Christ, is going to die twice, once physically, and the other will be eternal death, the second death, the lake of fire. But he or she who was born twice, in other words, born physically, and then born again of the Spirit when they receive Christ, they're only going to die once physically. And if the rapture happens, they won't die at all. And that's what I'm rooting for. But um, among those who are unbelievers, physical death is the greatest fear they have. But Jesus said that spiritual death is to be feared much more than physical death. So let me say it again. Among those who are unbelievers, physical death is their greatest fear. But Jesus said, no, Spiritual death needs to be your greatest fear. And I quote Matthew 10, verse 28 on this subject, where Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus promises categorically, that all overcomers, and again, we're talking about true believers in Jesus Christ, all overcomers will absolutely not, absolutely not ever be cast into the lake of fire or sent to hell. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Hold on to that thought. Over such the second death, hell, has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years on the, on the earth during the millennial kingdom. Guys, the term, and we've covered this before, but in case you're new with us, I want to make this clear to you. The term first resurrection is, listen, a category of different resurrections and not a single event. Now, now listen to me. You read first resurrection, you're thinking of a single event. That's not true. It is a category in which are numerous resurrections. Hold on to that. We'll, we'll, we'll explain. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the first resurrection. He said in chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, he's talking about these resurrections. And each one, if you study the passage, each group is what he has in mind, each group. Uh, each group will be resurrected in their own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Guys, the word for order, you know, each one, each group will be resurrected in its own order. Verse 23, the word order is the Greek word tagma, and it means a series of succession, a series of succession. The word originally referred to military rank. 
the order of command, you might say, or actually that's exactly what it was, uh, i.e. the order of importance, rank, okay? Paul is telling us that the physical resurrection of believers doesn't happen all at once, but consists in a series of successive uh, resurrections, starting with the resurrection of Jesus, uh, whom Paul called the first fruits. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul said, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We'll come back to that. Christ is the first fruits uh, from the dead of all those who have fallen asleep. Look, as the Lamb of God, Jesus died for us on Passover. That was the day he was crucified, literally the day. He died on the cross on Passover, and then three days later he arose from the dead on Sunday, which uh, was actually the Feast of First Fruits. Now you can study the Feast of First Fruits in Leviticus 23, verses 9 to 14. It was an agricultural feast, and uh, during the week of Passover, he had Passover unleavened bread. Uh, during that week, there was one Sunday. That Sunday was the Feast of First Fruits. It was an agricultural feast where in the spring of the year, when the barley harvest started to just come up out of the ground, the first uh, little shoots of the barley harvest were now visible. Uh, on the Feast of First Fruits, uh, the farmer would take and he would cut down some of these little shoots uh, and he would bring it to the temple, and there they would be a wave before the Lord as a wave offering. And the idea was that you were giving God the first fruits of the harvest he was giving to you. Very important point. If you study the Old Testament, God always wanted his people to put him first. He needed he wanted to be the first fruits of their of, of everything in their life. In other words, all the blessings he was going to give them and did give them. Uh, the first fruits of the land, the first fruits of the womb, both animal and human, belonged to him. And the idea was if the people would honor him by putting him first and showing how much they appreciated him by taking some of the blessings he had given, to, was he gave them the harvest, he gave them all these blessings, uh, you know, uh, uh, on their farms and ranches and things. But if they would take some of the first fruits and offer it to God, it would be like saying, Lord, I know this is, you've given this to me. I, I'm, it's, all, it's all yours, okay? But thank you, Lord, and I want to give some back to you just to say thank you. And, and, and to remind myself that you must be first in my life, my family, our nation, and so on. Very important point. A lot of Christians give God lip service in this regard, but they don't, uh, they don't really put him first. Some people have asked me, uh, look, I want to tithe, even though I don't really think tithing is around today. Uh, as a law, you can still do it, of course. I mean, I, I start there, 10%, and then go from there. But I've had people say to me, well, Pastor, I mean, uh, you know, can I tithe to God from the net of my paycheck? I mean, the gross, I don't, that's not how much I'm getting. Uh, you know, why, why can't I just a tithe to God from the net of my paycheck and not the gross? I say, well, you can give to God whatever you want. However, if you're going to tithe, you can't give to him out of the net. You got to give to him out of the gross of your paycheck. Why? If you give to him out of the net, then Uncle Sam has already been the one to get the first fruits. And so, you know, if you want to do it, do it right and give to God what belongs to God, which is the first fruits, and then whatever the gross is, and then, you know, you go from there. But a very important point, 
But uh, listen, the idea was with the Feast of First Fruits, as they brought some of the first shoots of the barley harvest to the temple and offered them to God, um, it was it, it was understood God accepted that offering. And then uh, what happened was then, uh, then they went back to their farms believing that because God accepted the first fruits, he would respond by giving them an abundant har harvest later on at the time of the great fall harvest. Even so, guys, when Jesus was raised from the dead and became the first fruits, it was God's assurance that to us, it was God's assurance to us that we shall also be raised one day as a part of the great harvest of souls from the dead. Jesus being the first fruits, uh, guaranteed as he ascended back to the Father and was received by the Father to the Father's right hand. It was symbolic in the sense that now that Jesus was the first fruits accepted by God the Father, would guarantee that a great harvest of souls would come up from the ground at the time of the great, the great um, future harvest of souls from the dead. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 19? Because I live, you will live also. Guys, referring to Jesus as the first fruits, understand something. This is not a chronological idea that he was the first one ever to be raised from the dead. Well, that's not true. We know in the Old Testament, numerous people were raised from the dead. In the New Testament, we have three accounts recorded of people raised from the dead. Uh, Jairus' daughter, the widow uh, of Nain's son, so the widow who lived in the town of Nain, her son died and was brought back to life by Jesus. And then, of course, the most famous one was Lazarus, which we're going to study uh, on Sunday uh, mornings in a week or two. But um, the idea is that with Jesus is the first fruits. It doesn't mean he was the first one to ever be raised from the dead. Uh, but the idea was that Jesus' resurrection was different. The word first fruits, uh, you know, comes from a term that means superior. First being superior, not first in chrono chronology, but first uh, as something superior. Jesus' resurrection was superior to every other person who was resurrected because those that were resurrected before him all died again physically. But Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, his was unique in that he never died again physically because he was resurrected with a glorified body. Even as we will be someday, poor Lazarus, he was raised from the dead, but he died again. When we are raised from the dead at the time of the rapture, we're going to be raised with our glorified bodies. We're never going to see death ever again, all right? And that brings us to the second uh, point, okay, uh, in this order or succession of resurrection, all right? Jesus is first. He's the first fruits. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, next comes the physical resurrection of the church, the body of Christ. Uh, all those people who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ from Pentecost to the rapture, that period of time is called the church age. So every person that got saved during the church age, they will be a part uh, of the next resurrection after Jesus. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then stay there, because we're going to be there for just a few minutes. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Paul said, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. 
You see, in Thessalonica, some of the saints were beginning to die. All right, some of them were had died off, and so now the church was like, "Well, what is? Are they going to miss the kingdom? They're dead. I mean, they all thought the kingdom was coming so soon they would all make it. Well, they were wrong about the timing, of course. But then they started to worry. Well, are these people lost? And that's why Paul fired them this letter in part to to teach them about this. And he said, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. I want you to be, you know, coming unglued concerning those who have died uh, in Christ, uh, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. They're not lost. All right, they're going to be at the in the kingdom. Uh, he said, though, that to these believers that death is only sleep. He likened it to sleep. Why? Because death for the Christian is not like death for the unbeliever. Death for the unbeliever is final. Uh, in a sense where it's it's there it's it's a it's a final kind of a, and it will lead to the second death which is eternal but the idea is that uh, for the Christian when we die uh, we're going to be resurrected we're going to be awakened quote unquote so that's why the New Testament likens the death of Christians to sleep uh, the body sleeps but the soul uh, sleeps in death but the soul and spirit go home to be with the Lord. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, to be absent from the body, physical body, is to be present with the Lord. So when a Christian dies, their body goes back to the earth, dust, it's laid into the ground and sleeps, so, so to speak, but their soul and spirit go immediately to be into the, in the presence of the Lord. Now, at the rapture, the physical body will be resurrected, awakened, you might say, glorified instantaneously, and will be reunited with our soul and our spirit. Look at verses 14 through 16, 1 Thessalonians 4. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, now he's talking about the rapture here, all right? will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have died in Christ before the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, guys, these are dead saints who are part of the body of Christ, obviously. They will be resurrected first, uh, and then maybe a millisecond later, those of us who are still alive on the earth, because when the rapture happens, you're going to have many believers, Christians who have died throughout the centuries, who will be in their, their bodies will be in the grave. Uh, but then many people will be alive. Christians will be alive when the rapture takes place. And uh, so maybe a millisecond later, I don't know, very, very quickly, um, these, uh, these uh, saints that were resurrected from the grave are going to be joined by us believers who are still alive on the earth when the rapture takes place, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain on the earth shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, of course, the, the term caught up is the Greek word harpazo, and it literally means to be snatched away, evacuated quickly off the earth. Well, yeah, because judgment's coming, and God's not going to punish the righteous with the wicked. All right, that's what the rapture is all about. 
God evacuating his people off the earth before his judgment is poured out. But it's harpazo, to be caught up. Uh, the Latin word, in the Latin Vulgate, uh, the, the Latin word is rapio, from which we get the word rapture. All right? Now, don't confuse this coming of Jesus. Again, this is the rapture in view here in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4. Don't confuse this coming of Jesus with the second coming of Jesus, right? Um, because here... Talking about the rapture, Jesus comes, listen, for his church in the air, whereas the second coming of Jesus is Jesus coming with his church all the way to the earth to establish his kingdom. You can read about that in Revelation 19. The next resurrection will be that of the tribulation saints. So now we're talking about this order of succession, how these resurrections take place uh, in a, a certain order, all right? And the next resurrection will be of the tribulation saints. Uh, listen, many will come to trust in Christ during the tribulation period, which is seven years total, but especially during the last three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. During this horrific, and I say that, you know, during this horrific period of time, many godly people, people that had gotten saved during the tribulation period. Um, many of these people would be put to death by the Antichrist for their faith. At the end of that period of time, Jesus will return to the earth. This is his second coming. And at that time, he will end the Antichrist persecution of God's people. He will destroy his armies that have gathered together in the Valley of Megiddo to go, war, to, go to war against Jesus Christ. He'll destroy them with the word that proceeds out of, their, out of his mouth. He'll vaporize them. And he's going to take not just the Antichrist, but the Antichrist and false prophet and cast them alive into the lake of fire, into hell. Read about that in Revelation 19, verse 20. Then Jesus will resurrect all those believers in him that the Antichrist martyred. And they will become a part of his millennial kingdom and reign with him. And us, we'll be there too, right? But Revelation 20, verse 4 and I saw thrones, John says, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast, in other words, had not worshipped the Antichrist or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. So these were people that wouldn't follow the Antichrist, wouldn't bow to worship him, wouldn't accept his mark on their forehead or on their right hand, they will be uh, killed. They were killed, martyred. Uh, now they're resurrected, and John says, and they will live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So they're resurrected when Jesus comes. And um, to establish his kingdom, first thing he does is resurrect the tribulation saints, but also, guys, he resurrects at that time the Old Testament saints as well, Moses, Daniel, Isaiah, and so on. The resurrection of the Old Testament saints, guys, I believe, will occur simultaneously with the resurrection of the tribulation saints, again, when Jesus returns, and uh, they also will be a part of his kingdom. Well, of course, it was a Jewish promise, the kingdom of God. I would be shocked if Moses and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah were not part of the kingdom. Of course, they will be. Uh, but they're going to be resurrected when Jesus Christ returns to the earth at his second coming. The tribulation saints will be resurrected. The Old Testament saints resurrected. 
all in preparation for Jesus establishing the kingdom because these people will all enter the kingdom with their glorified bodies and will reign with Jesus Christ and his church, his bride. The resurrection of Old Testament saints was promised by God through the, uh, through the Old Testament prophets in different places. I'll read to you from Daniel. He was one of those that God revealed this to. Uh, Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, says, At that time Michael, the archangel, who stands guard over your nation, the nation of Israel, will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. But at that time, every one of your people, now it's talking about the Jewish people, whose name is written in the book, the book of life, will be rescued or resurrected. Many of these whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Guys, this parallels very much what Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Let me read it to you. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice, the voice of Jesus, and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who are believers, right, and... Um, those who have done evil, who were not believers, to the resurrection of condemnation, the resurrection of that, the resurrection of judgment, they will be cast into hell. Again, guys, if it weren't for other passages in the New Testament, we would be left to conclude that this will be one giant, all-encompassing resurrection of believers and unbelievers together, who will be raised all at the same time. That's not. Uh, it sounds like that in Daniel and in John 5, but uh, we know from Revelation that's not the case. These two resurrections will be separated by at least a thousand years, all right? And that brings us to a fifth resurrection I have to mention, although it may sound a little strange, all right? And that is the resurrection of millennial kingdom believers. Now, hear me out. During the millennial kingdom, there will of necessity be uh, a resurrection because uh, of believers, uh, because some of them are going to die. They're not going to live the entire thousand years. So uh, during the millennial kingdom, uh, there's going to be the resurrection of believers who died during that time, the thousand year reign of Christ. Remember now, death won't be done away with until after the millennial kingdom, when God creates a new heavens and a new earth. Listen, Revelation 21, verses 1 and 4, John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Verse 4, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, but the former things have passed away away. One pastor commented on this by saying, and I quote, it is interesting to think that they may well be raised as soon as they die, no burial being necessary. It would make death for a believer during the kingdom nothing more than an instant transformation into his eternal glorified body, end quote. Something to think about. 
although, guys, because of the conditions upon the earth during the millennial kingdom, and I personally believe that the earth will be returned to a paradise state, the kind of state it was in in the Garden of Eden before the fall. I believe, and there's passages that kind of indicate that, not the least of which is Matthew 19, verse 28. Jesus said when it, you know, in the kingdom, he called it in the regeneration. And that literally means new birth. It's the same word that was used when of the world when Noah and his family departed the ark. It was a brand new world, all right? And I believe that when uh, you know, Jesus comes back to the earth, he is going to restore it uh, to a time like it was before the fall. How beautiful is that going to be? A paradise. Uh, probably uh, shift the earth from its 22.5, 23.5 tilt of its axis that gives us different climates around the world, maybe bringing it straight up and allow an even uh, temperature distribution around the whole planet where now you don't have harsh uh, Antarctica and uh, very hot equator temperatures. The, the earth becomes more uh, uh, even-tempered, uh, even temperature uh, around the earth. But of a paradise, a paradise. And um, this is where we're going to live for a thousand years. And because of this, uh, no more harsh climates across the planet. Uh, I believe that uh, most people will live the entire thousand years. Remember, before the flood, uh, Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible, lived to be 969 years old. And if you wonder how could that be, get our, get our uh, uh, study in Genesis, uh, go online, listen to it. We talked about all this, all right? But uh, I believe because of how the Lord's going to remake the earth uh, and all, that most people will live the whole thousand years, but not everybody. In Isaiah 65, verse 20, we read, uh, during this time, it's talking about the millennial kingdom, no longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100, okay? Only the cursed will die that young. In other words, another version says the child will die at 100. So it's going to be a different world, and uh, it's very interesting to think about what is coming and how beautiful the earth is going to be, and no carnivorous animals. The Bible says the uh, the lion will lay down with the lamb and the child will play by the uh, poisonous snake's hole and not be harmed. I mean, nothing's going to hurt. There's going to be no, uh, the uh, oh, the carnivores right now, lions and bears and, 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 and whatever, are going to eat grass like the cows and so on. Um, very different world, very beautiful world the millennial kingdom will be. But guys, after all believers, after all believers are raised from the dead, in their own order of succession, again, that is a category called the first resurrection, all right? Even after all these believers are raised from the dead in their own order of succession, that leaves only one final resurrection, the resurrection of the unrighteous. The resurrection of the unrighteous will take place, listen, after the thousand-year millennial kingdom comes to an end. How do I know that? Revelation 20, verse 5. This is the first resurrection, talking about all believers in these various groups that will be raised from the dead. This is the first resurrection. The rest of the dead did not come back to life until the thousand years had ended. These would be all unbelievers, uh, are going to be resurrected 
at the end of the millennial kingdom. And once again, guys, and if I'm repeating myself, bear with me, it's an important thing to get clear, okay, to be clear on. Again, this final resurrection, the resurrection of the unrighteous, again, all unbelievers uh, who have ever lived, these will be raised to condemnation and eternal punishment at the end of Christ's thousand-year reign. You can read about this judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. But again, Jesus promised the believers in the church of Smyrna, and of course, by extension, all true believers in him, that we will all be a part of the first resurrection, and on us the second death will have no power. Again, Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For then the second death, hell, lake of fire, holds no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. Guys, that's exactly what Jesus promised us in John 5, 24. He said, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life and they will never be condemned, never go to hell uh, for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. Well, Paul echoed that, Paul the Apostle, in Romans 8, verse 1. He said, so now there is no condemnation, no eternal punishment in hell for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And again, guys, every believer, whether they are a member of the church, in other words, those who got saved from Pentecost to the rapture, uh, or whether they're an Old Testament saint, a tribulation saint, or a millennial kingdom saint, they all belong to the category of the first resurrection. And again, to this group of people, again, all true believers, Jesus promised, they will never perish in hell. Now listen, as we close, that doesn't mean they won't be persecuted on earth for their faith. Again, Revelation 2, verse 10, Jesus said, and this could apply to us very quickly, very soon, all right? We need to take this to heart. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. I just want to close by saying that more Christians have been killed in the last 150 to 170 years than in the first 19 centuries of church history combined. Let me read to you something. It's uh, an article which says Richard Warmbrand endured 14 years of imprisonment and torture in his homeland of Romania between 1948 and 1964. He had been led, he had led a secret underground ministry when the communists seized Romania and tried to control the church for their purposes. Wormbrand, like the Apostle Peter, stresses the tremendous need to get spiritually ready to suffer now, before it happens. Listen to what he said. I'm quoting him. What shall we do about these tortures? Will we, will we be able to bear them if they come upon us? If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men 
whom I know because that is what the communists wish from me to betray those around me. And here comes the great need for the role of, pre of preparation, he wrote. He said, it will, be, it will be too difficult to prepare yourself for it when the communists or whoever else wants to persecute us. When the communists, uh, he said, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. It will be uh, too difficult to prepare yourself for it when the communists have put you in prison. I remember my last confirmation class before I left Romania. I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to church, but to the zoo. <laughs> before the cage of the lions, we stood. I told them, your forefathers were thrown were thrown. Uh, before such wild beasts for their faith. Know that you also will have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you will have to do with men who would be much worse than lions. Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. They had tears in their eyes, and they all said, yes. Wow. Last Sunday, we had Wes Bentley come out, who was the founder of Far-Reaching Ministries. There are uh, ministries, uh, there are ministry in 28 countries now. But uh, the one I think primarily is uh, Africa in the Sudan, southern Sudan. And when he was a brand new believer, he uh, heard about Richard Wormbra, and he, he heard about his story and, and then found out one of the churches in the area was going to host him. He was going to come out and speak at the church. So uh, Wes said, I had to go. And uh, he said this was a megachurch, 10, 15,000 people. And he said that uh, Richard Warmbrand walked up to the podium in his stocking feet. And uh, West thought that was a little odd. But uh, after he spoke and with such power uh, at uh, what Christians suffered under the hands of the communists and what Warmbrand himself suffered, 14 years of torture, uh, you know, because he would not renounce his faith in Christ, he said to himself, Wes, did I say, he said, I'm going to stay here until every person leaves. I have to talk to this man. I have to understand his faith. I don't care if it takes three hours. He said, shockingly, it took about 10 minutes. People left immediately. Uh, some said, thank you. Others said, oh, we'll pray for you. They never did. Uh, and he went up to Richard Warmbrand and said, um, sir, I want to know about your faith. What did you go through? And why, why are you wearing socks and not shoes? He said, well, he said there were numerous times when I wouldn't renounce my faith for Christ that they laid me on a table, took my shoes and socks off, and then they took baseball bats and other objects and they beat my feet until they were all broken. And they did this on numerous occasions to break me and to get me to, to renounce my faith. By God's grace, I never did, but it left me uh, with feet that are very painful to walk on and I can't really get shoes on. And I thought to myself, good Lord, what kind of a Christian am I compared to a man like this? I mean, how soft and, and country club-like is our Christianity compared to something like these Christians suffer in, suffered in Romania, but suffered today in Muslim countries and other places, communist nations? Um, may God help us. May God help us to prepare for the persecution that might be coming down the road in the near future. Uh, may God, by his grace, give us strength. We have to look for it. We have to prepare our hearts now. How would we respond to it? Would we, re would we renounce Christ immediately? Or would we, by his grace, stand and not deny our Savior? Uh, only persecution will 
show us um, how we will fare. But it's all going to be by the grace of God. So we need to start praying now.